Well, friends, would you uh, turn with me, please, to the words that we read in Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, and uh, reading again verses 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write uh, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. You have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent." Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who is an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. As a denomination, the free church has a vision to see a healthy gospel church for every community in Scotland. I'll say that again. A healthy gospel church for every community in Scotland. And I hope that is your aim and your ambition for our congregation. That we would be a healthy gospel church within our community. But there are a number of dangers facing congregations who want to see this vision realised. A number of impediments that can prevent a church from becoming a healthy gospel church. And so this morning we're beginning a new series, a seven-part series on Revelation 2 and 3, where Jesus speaks to seven churches in Asia about seven particular dangers facing them. And today we're looking at the danger of losing our love for Jesus. The danger of losing our love for Jesus. And we'll look at these verses under three headings. The description, the danger, and then the declaration. First, the the description. Verse 1. Here the risen Jesus provides a description of who he is. We can start by noting who this letter is addressed to at the beginning of verse 1. It's addressed to an angel. Now that word angel doesn't simply mean a, a heavenly being. It can also refer to a messenger. One who heralds a message on behalf of someone else. And that is the sense in which the word has been used here in Revelation 9, chapter 2. That the, the, the angel is a messenger. And it's addressed to the messenger of the church in Ephesus. In other words, it's addressed to a church leader. And not just to a church leader, but to the church, the congregation whom he represents. And the particular congregation on this occasion is the church in Ephesus. The city of Ephesus was one of the four most powerful uh, cities in the Roman world, along with Rome, Alexandria, and Syrian Antioch. It was a city boasting a population of over 250,000 people, a city that was famous for its temple to the goddess Artemis, a city that was a leading centre of what was known as the Roman imperial cult, where the emperor, Caesar, was worshipped as saviour and lord. And in about 52 AD, uh, less than uh, 20 or so years after the death of Jesus, the Apostle Paul plants a church in this large city. And we can continue by noting who this letter is addressed from in the second half of verse 1. 
The church in Ephesus is told that this letter has come from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. If you go back to Revelation 1, we're given a vision of the risen and exalted Jesus. And he's presented as the one who holds seven stars in his right hand. The seven stars represent the angels, the messengers of the churches who are mentioned in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And so here we find the risen Jesus reminding the church in Ephesus that he is the one who holds its leadership holds its minister, holds its elders, holds its deacons in his strong hand, his sovereign hand, his right hand. And the church in Ephesus is also told that this letter has come from the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Again in Revelation 1, the risen and exalted Jesus is presented as one who stands among the seven golden lampstands. The seven golden lampstands represent these seven churches that are mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3. And so here we find the risen Jesus reminding the church in Ephesus that he is the one who walks among them. He is the one who is present with them. Now friends, as we consider this verse, we are being given a reminder of who Jesus is. A reminder of who Jesus is. That is what we see here in Revelation 2. The risen Jesus reminds the church in Ephesus that he is the one who holds its leadership in his strong hand. His sovereign hand. And he's the one who walks among them. In other words, he is reminding them of his protection and his presence. Doug Kelly writes, Why would Jesus have picked out this aspect of himself to tell the Ephesians? Was it because they were growing cold in their devotion to him? Nothing will rekindle love better than realising how kindly someone has treated you or how much they care for you. And here is Jesus and he's saying, Remember church in Ephesus, I'm the one who protects you. And I'm the one who's present with you. And that is such an important point for ourselves. The risen Jesus continues to protect his people. In John chapter 10, we're told that every Christian has been placed into the strong, sovereign hand of Jesus. That is their great assurance. That is their ultimate security. And as we have just sung in Before the Throne, there is nothing and no one in all of creation that will pluck them or snatch them from that strong sovereign hand. If you are a Christian today, you have this great protector, you have this Jesus, and you are in his hands. And the risen Jesus continues to be present with his people. He, he, he is not dismissive toward them. He is not distant toward them. He is with them. There is no church meeting that he fails to show up to. Though we might find our sofas or our beds a little bit more comfortable. There is no communion or brunch or cup of tea that he fails to sit down at. There's no sermon. There's no song. There's no prayer that, that he doesn't listen to. There's no tear that's shed. There's no heartache that's felt that that he is unaware of. There's no person that shows up to a service and quietly sits at the back hoping that nobody will notice them. Nobody will pay attention to them. That he doesn't notice. That he doesn't pay attention to. There isn't Jesus 
protects his people and he's present with his people. And the question that I want to begin today asking, friends, is do you know this Jesus? I'm not asking, do you know about him? I'm asking the question, do you know him? Do you know him personally? Do you know the Jesus who is present with his people, who who delights in being present with his people? Do you know the Jesus who delights in protecting his people? Do you know this Jesus? But we move from the description to the danger. Look at verses 2 to 6, where the risen Jesus now highlights the danger facing the Ephesian church. Verses 2 and 3, we hear the commendation. The risen Jesus begins by commending the church in Ephesus for their diligence. He says that he knows their works. He says that he knows their toil. He says that he knows their patient endurance. This is a diligent church. This is a hard-working church. The risen Jesus continues by commending the church in Ephesus for their discernment. He says that he knows that they cannot bear with those who are evil. He says that he knows that they have tested those who claim to be apostles and aren't. This is a discerning church. A church that carefully evaluates the claims of those who come into it professing to be Christians. A church that carefully evaluates the claims of every minister who is preaching from its pulpit. And they're asking the question, is this man really a Christian? Is this elder really a Christian? Let's weigh up what they are saying and what they are doing with what the Bible says. And the reason Jesus goes further and he commends the church in Ephesus for their determination. He says he knows that they have endured patiently. He says that he knows that they are bearing up for his name's sake. He says that he knows that they have not grown weary. This is a determined church. A church that persists. A church that perseveres. A church that keeps on going no matter how difficult it gets. No matter how tough it gets. They, they just keep on going. But we can move from the commendation to the concern. Look at verse 4. Up until this point things have been very positive. And then the risen Jesus changes tone. And he turns to this church and he says, but I have this against you. There is one thing that's wrong with this church. And that one thing is everything. The risen Jesus outlines the one thing that he is concerned about when it comes to this church. He tells them that they have abandoned the love that they had at first. They have lost the love that they had for Jesus when they were first converted. They have lost the love that they had for Jesus when they first heard and believed the gospel. They are a church who believe the right things. They are a church who behave the right way. But their love for Jesus has cooled off. Their love for Jesus has grown cold. And the risen Jesus knows this. You can't hide anything from him. And we can move from the concern then to the council in verses 5 and 6. The risen Jesus now counsels the church in Ephesus as to what they should do. He starts by telling them to remember the height from which they have fallen. He urges them to reflect on their past love 
and compare that with their present love. And he says to them, look at how far you have fallen. Look at the distance between the love that you used to have with the love that you now have. And he carries on and he tells them to repent. He urges them to change their course, change their direction, change their their whole mindset. And he closes by telling them to do the works that they did at first. He's just saying, guys, get back to basics. Get back to doing what you used to do so easily, so effortlessly, so freely, with such joy. Just get back to basics. Stop trying to do so many things and just get back to the basics of loving me. And the reason Jesus then warns them about what will happen if they don't follow that counsel. He warns them that if they do not repent, he will come to them. And he warns that when he comes, he will remove their lampstand from its place. Now to remove their lampstand means that this church will lose its status as a church. The light of Christ will no longer go out from this church. The gospel of Christ will no longer resound with power from this church. This church will be left as a church in name only. And you know friends, I've seen it. And I'm sure you've seen it. Where there are churches that are churches in name only. But there's no more light going out from them. There's no more gospel going out from them. There's no more power of Christ in them. But the reason Jesus isn't finished as he commends them regarding one final matter. He tells them that they hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which he also hates. Now, we don't know much about these Nicolaitans. It would seem that they were a group who claimed that a person could be a Christian and at the same time participate in the Roman imperial cult. Participate in the worship of the emperor. It would seem that they were a group who claimed that a person could be a Christian while at the same time live an idolatrous and moral lifestyle. And the reason Jesus uses this very strong language as he says that he hates the practices of the Nicolaitans. And commends the church in Ephesus for sharing his attitude. Now friends, as we consider these verses, we're being confronted with the danger of losing our love for Jesus. The danger of losing our love for Jesus. That's what we see in Revelation 2. The church in Ephesus is a diligent church. A discerning church. A determined church. They're a church that are constantly engaged in outreach, constantly engaged in evangelism, constantly engaged in discipleship. They were scrupulous about who was allowed to preach, scrupulous. Okay, friends, let's just resume where we were. So the church in Ephesus were a church that were a church that simply kept on going despite all the setbacks, despite all the sufferings, despite all the discouragements, despite all the difficulties, despite all the pressure, despite all the persecution that they were experiencing. They were a church that very much exemplified right belief and right behavior. Using today's language, they were a sound church, they were a solid church, they were a staunch church. But despite all this, their love for Jesus had cooled off 
and grown cold. They were a church whose heads were full, but whose hearts were empty. And the reason Jesus says to them, if you don't do something about this, I will remove your status as a church. And that is such a caution for us today. Joel Beakey writes, in our text, first love refers to the love when our souls are first captivated by the beauty, fullness and loveliness of the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore rest upon him for salvation. First love springs up when we lay all our sins at the foot of Calvary's cross and embrace Christ's righteousness by faith. First love wins my heart for the Lord Jesus Christ. He becomes so lovely that I want to be united to him forever. Samuel Rutherford puts it like this. If you saw Jesus, who is standing on the shore, holding out his arms and welcome to you, you would not only wade through a sea of wrongs, but through hell itself to be at him. But you know, the sad reality, friends, is that it's not difficult for that white hot love, that first love for Jesus, to cool down and grow cold. And perhaps the biggest danger facing many professing Christians and many congregations is that we can find ourselves believing the right things and behaving the right way, while at the same time we have a decreasing love for Jesus. I've seen that in my own life. I've known occasions where my head was bursting with theology and I held to very conservative positions, even by free church standards. Now, you might think the free church is strict. I was stricter. But my love for Jesus had cooled down. It had grown cold. And maybe that's the experience of some of you who are here today. You believe the right things. You behave the right way. There is nothing to suggest that you are anything other than a sound Christian, a solid Christian, a staunch Christian. But you know that your love for Jesus has cooled off. You know that your love for Jesus has grown cold. And maybe today is giving you an opportunity to remember the height from which you have fallen and to repent and to do what you used to do, to to just get back to basics. This morning I want to ask each of us as individuals and as a congregation, does Jesus have the supreme place in our hearts? Does Jesus have the supreme place in our affections? Is our love for the risen Lord increasing or decreasing? Would we be willing to wade through a sea of wrongs, even through hell, just to be with Jesus. How's your love today? And then third and finally, we come to the declaration. Look at verse 7, where the risen Jesus now declares what will happen to those who act on his words. The risen Jesus declares what will happen to those who act on his words. In the first half of verse 7, we hear the exhortation. And throughout the Gospels, we often hear Jesus issuing the call Let the one who has ears to hear, listen. It functions as an exhortation to a person to open their minds and open their hearts to what he is saying and to to do what he is saying, to put what he is saying into practice. And here there is in Jesus says, He who has an ear to hear, 
Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He is exhorting the church in Ephesus to open their minds and open their hearts to what he is saying. He is exhorting the church in Ephesus to put what he is saying into practice. And we can move them from the exhortation to the encouragement in the second half of verse 7. The risen Jesus speaks about the one who conquers, the one who overcomes. Now that language of conquering or overcoming is used throughout Revelation chapters 2 and 3 to describe a living faith, an active faith, a faith that perseveres to the end. One writer has said, the conqueror is the man who fights against sin, fights against the devil and his whole dominion and in his love for Christ, he perseveres to the end. And here the risen Jesus tells the church in Ephesus that if they conquer, if they overcome, if they put into practice what he has been telling them, they will eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. The tree of life is mentioned three times in Revelation 22 as one of the features of the new heaven and the new earth. One of the features of God's new creation In Genesis chapters 2 and 3, Adam and Eve had lived in a garden paradise where the tree of life was planted in the very centre of the garden. But after they sin, after they fall, they're banished from the garden. They're removed from the garden. And their access to the tree of life is barred. Their access to the tree of life is restricted. But here there is in Jesus is encouraging the church in Ephesus with the promise that if they hear what he is saying, and if they act on what he is saying, they will eat from the tree of life. He's telling them that they will live in the paradise of God. He's telling them that they will live in that new heaven and new earth, that new creation, if they have ears to hear. Now, friends, as we consider these verses, we're being given an encouragement also to listen to and act On what the risen Lord is saying. That's what we're seeing here in Revelation 2. The risen Jesus has commended the church in Ephesus for their right belief. And commended them for their right behaviour. And then he has expressed his concern over their decreasing love for them. And he has counselled them to remember the height from which they have fallen. And to repent... And to do what they did at first. Get back to basics. And he said do this. And he says if you don't do this. I will remove your status as a church. And now right at the end. He exhorts them. To listen to and act on what he has been saying. And he encourages them. With the promise that if they do so. If they remember the height from which they have fallen. If they repent. If they get back to basics, if they recover their first love, then they will eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. And what an encouragement, friends, that is for ourselves. Last Sunday I spoke about the former Chelsea and Newcastle footballer Gavin Peacock and his book A Greater Glory. And in one chapter, he speaks about the effort that he put in as a teenager when it came to training. Listen to what he says. I made it to the England under-17 squad, and it was going well. And then I contracted glandular fever. This was not just a challenge. It was a real setback. 
I couldn't run more than a lap after the initial fever and tonsillitis. I was so exhausted I couldn't train for nearly three months. That is a long time when you're 17 and fighting to make it in the world of professional football. At first all I could think of was how much ground I was losing. But as the weeks went on I got a little stronger and I came up with a plan. If I couldn't train with the lads and my aerobic fitness was hindered then I would work on my muscular strength. At five foot nine, I needed to be all I could physically. I inspired myself with Rocky movies and the stories of his comebacks against the odds. I painted the inside of our garage at home and set it up like a small gym with a bench press and some free weights. I studied diet. I read fitness magazines. I developed a weights program which systematically built up my muscle mass and power. Over the next few weeks, surrounded by posters of Sylvester Stallone and with Journey playing on my ghetto blaster, I went through the pain barrier each day, put on eight pounds of muscle and carved out a new physique. Now friends, we ask ourselves, why would a 17-year-old do that? Why would a 17-year-old push himself through the pain barrier day after day? It was for the reward of making it as a professional footballer. And that contains a spiritual application for ourselves. As Joel Beakey says, Christ persuades us, yes, through his threats, but also by giving us promises. What Christ holds out before us to encourage us in our Christian lives is the hope of once more walking with God in the garden in the cool of the day. Everything that we have forfeited by sin has been recovered by the blood of Christ and will be restored to us in the end. With such great promises of reward, nothing should keep us from using all possible means to recover our first love that we may overcome by faith and obtain the promised blessing. So friends, this morning, the risen Jesus is speaking to the high three. He is speaking to every individual in the high three. He is speaking to the congregation as a whole. And he is exhorting us not to be losing our first love. He is exhorting us not to be lacking in love when it comes to him. He is exhorting us to recover that love if it's begun to cool off and grow cold. And as he exhorts us, he encourages us to think about the glorious reward that awaits those who listen to and act on what he is saying. And the question that I want to close today asking, friends, is Are you listening? Are you listening to what Jesus is saying? When Jesus says, My dear friend, your love is cooling off. Your love has grown cold. And I want you to recover that love. And if you recover that love, you will be rewarded with eating from the tree of life in the paradise of God. My friend, are you listening? Let's pray.